welcome to a grad chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's grad chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Sue Baisley, who is doing her PhD in Geography and Planning under the supervision of Dr. Joan Swartz, Sean Mars, who is doing a PhD in History under the supervision of Dr. Andrew Janehill, Jane and Carrie Ewins, who is doing a Master's in Biology under the supervision of Shelley Arnott, and Scott Lamoureux from Geography Department. Welcome to Grad Chat. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's a good start. Okay. <laughs> I've got to stop laughing. <laughs> now, Sue, you have been on Grad Chat a couple of times now, but um, just for everyone's sake, I wanted Sue back as, again, she has been doing some incredible work to help the Kingston community. And then, on the other hand, I've got Sean here who has not been on Grad Chat before, but was our runner up in this year's three minute thesis competition. <laughs> and like Sue has been helping out in the community. And then of course we've got Carrie. This is the first time I've gotten to chat with Carrie. So I'm looking forward to hearing about her work. So it's a lot, a lot of different reasons for bringing these three back on, but there is a connection between the three of them. But before we get on to the community work, I'd like to ask each of you to share us some insights into your studies. So Sue, let's start with you. As a reminder to everyone, your research topic is changing heritage practice on the Rideau Canal and Kingston Fortifications World Heritage Site. So can you give me very quickly what that is? And, and then I actually want to get into the question is, you know, what is heritage? What does world heritage mean? And do visitors actually understand the, the difference? Okay. Well, um, what I'm doing is looking really at how people interact with that site, uh, which is a very large site. And I've been concentrating mostly on, on the south end. So sort of between Kingston and Jones Falls and really looking at the ways in which the site is looked after, the ways in which people interact with the different locations, how they use it, um, and really the, the sense of value that people feel. So I've been actually looking uh, at watching people and seeing how they interact. So I've also done a number of, uh, a large number of interviews with um, different sectors of the population um, from heritage professionals to tourism professionals to um, general public, and also looked at archival material to see how it's evolved over time. So uh, it's it's a pretty big project, and uh, I guess uh, it's always good to have lots of data, and I have a lot of data. So I'm just kind of in the <laughs> process of, of going through that now and, and um, analyzing it and really trying to figure out what I have gathered, what it means. And so uh, getting moving towards the end. Moving towards the end is always a nice thought, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, so, so back to my question, though, what is heritage? What does world heritage mean? And do people understand it? Yeah. So in terms of heritage, we I mean, heritage can be just about anything. 
And most often we tend to think of cultural heritage. So historic sites, mm -hmm. museums, um, artifact collections, buildings, uh, but it can also be natural heritage. And really in, in the site I'm looking at, so the Rideau Canal and Kingston fortifications, we have all of those elements. Uh, we have the built heritage uh, in terms mm -hmm. of the structures. We have the natural heritage as well, particularly on the canal. We have large sections of, of natural environment, um, the, the rivers and lakes, which help to form um, the root of the canal. We also have archaeological uh, resources and remains, and of course, lots of artifacts. So it's, it's really a, um, a site that has a lot of different designations, it has local value, regional value, national value. There are a number of national historic sites designations. But also, um, as we know, it was uh, became a World Heritage Site uh, a number of years ago. And really what I found very interesting, particularly in my interviews, is that people generally had an awareness that it was a World Heritage Site, but they didn't really know what that meant. And often people found themselves comparing it to um, international sites, you know, really famous ones like Hadrian's Wall, um, right. places in Greece, uh, all, you know, all over Europe and um, kind of thinking, well, how, how do we fit? Um, and mm -hmm. what does this really mean? So generally I would say there was a, a real lack of understanding um, as to exactly what world heritage means generally broadly but also for this this site people seemed much more aware of other world heritage sites so that that was really kind of interesting other than of course the, the heritage professionals who were involved in in getting the designation so do the i mean i totally get where you're saying that because you do think of those big things that the whole world knows so it's nice that we've got some of those world heritage sites within within walking distance really for us so do visitors and professionals perceive there are any issues with the site regarding stewardship, interpretation, interpretation um, and presentation with respect to their uses of it and experiences? Well, generally, um, across the board, people felt that the stewardship was, was fairly good. Um, you know, th this is a huge site and there are lots of jurisdictions involved. Um, so that's kind of difficult, but overall, I think people people were thinking that this was this is fairly well done with steward in terms of stewardship. But really, I think everyone was looking for different things to be presented. This is really uh, evidence of the colonial occupation, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. This is, uh, you know, the British government, this is the military. Um, but as we know, there are lots of lots of other um, aspects to to these sites, to the construction, to the people, um, and of course, indigenous uh, people and stories. So there was, um, well, well, generally, people thought things were were okay, or in some cases, well done. I think I got the sense that everyone was looking for something more um, and something different, not right. so much in terms of a, you know, a real flashbang type of show, but more information generally. Mm -hmm. so, so how does 
tourism and other pressures um, affect the site as a whole or local areas within the context of world heritage? Because I imagine tourism is the big thing, right? To make to help protect it to a, to a point, but it has its disadvantages as well. Right. Well, certainly um, tourism really is part of awareness. So whether it's local people being aware, um, whether it's people coming from international sites, you know, traveling, of course, that's much more limited now. But that awareness and um, sort of positive activities and feelings that are generated through tourism really feeds into the whole aspect of stewardship and particularly financial support. Um, If nobody's interested, if nobody's interested in finding out about the sites and visiting them, um, then it makes it really difficult to put money into them, to protect them, mm-hmm. um, and then, of course, to, to promote. So generally, tourism um, has positive effects. But one of the main things that people were, were really concerned about was the impacts from development, particularly in the urban areas. So the Ottawa end and the Kingston end, a little bit in between, but mostly at the, the, the two ends of particularly the Rideau Canal. And of course, here we have Fort Henry, we have the Martello Towers that are all part of that. And the impacts um, that we're seeing from development, from the changing landscape, so that we can no longer really kind of see these these locations. Uh, They don't stand out, they become more invisible. Um, And and so that's that's a bit of a concern, but also this concern with the natural um, aspects of of the sites and you know uh had a a good bit of discussion about whether um the trees should be allowed to grow whether improving um natural habitats very close to uh particular key parts of sites was was a good Mm -hmm. thing or not so it's really there's a big discussion um about this but generally tourism is seen as being a very positive thing for the sites well, that's good because we need to we need to protect these sites as much as possible. So I'm, I'm glad you're working on that and finding out not necessarily all the answers to it, but at least alerting people to the things that we need to consider to yes. protect these these sites. So thank you for that. Okay, I'm going to go on to Sean now. Sean, your research topic is state surveillance and espionage in 18th century France, which is fascinating, and I loved it. <laughs> so. Um, it's probably because I like history too. <laughs> so do you want to give, I mean, you, can, you can do one or two things. You can give your three minute thesis presentation, or you can give us another version or an overview of your research before I ask you some questions. Oh, goodness. Well, I don't think I can quite drop into the three minute thesis right away. <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's, it slipped my mind a little bit, <laughs> but I can definitely tell you a little bit about, about the research that I'm doing. So it, I suppose to, to start with, I'll, is I'll start actually with with how I found the topic because mm-hmm. I, I'm the way I tend to work as a historian is I don't come up with big questions and 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 then go and find the evidence. Instead, I prefer to to go into an archive, go into a site, and and find a really cool piece of evidence and then ask questions of it and build a project around it. So this is kind of what happened with with this surveillance is is last year in the in the before times uh, <laughs> I was able to to travel to to Paris and spend a bit of time in the archives and I discovered this big cache of surveillance reports 
that were written by the person in charge of the Paris police, and they were they were sent to the foreign minister, and they had reams upon reams of details of tourists and ambassadors and basically anybody who was coming into the city between for about 21 years. Every week there was a report of the people who had come into the city, what they were doing, who they were seeing, where they were staying. Wow. So this this was really interesting. And I, I mm-hmm. wanted to know right then and there, well, what is going on here? Why is it why does this exist? So this is really where the project started was I had this big cache of documents and I started to ask questions of it. So I started to ask the basic question was why? Why were the French police and the French foreign ministry interested in surveilling tourists? How were they doing? Was it just the tourists they were surveilling or was it everyone? So there are... Now that I've done a bit more reading, they did tend to surveil a lot of different people. Uh, they would tend the Paris police in, in this broad idea of, of keeping the peace in the city. They would uh, they would monitor any suspected individual. Um, they kept track of the book trade, the grain trade, gambling dens, drinking houses, these sorts of things. But I found. The, the, the thing that really struck me was this surveillance of tourists. Right. Uh, this just seems very odd. And I really kind of wanted to know, well, why were they doing this and how were they doing this? And, and, so, and you were able to, you're able to see all this in these papers that all these archives. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that the collection that I have is, is actually a, a very complete collection of, of reports on the activities of, People who are who are coming to see the sites, who are coming to see the Louvre and walk the gardens and eat at fancy restaurants, but they're being followed by police spies. So I, I think I think that's fascinating because to I me mean, today we have the cameras and everything and with all the electronics that's easier for for this kind of tracking. But this was happening back, as you said, in the 18th century. Well, exactly. And this this kind of struck me as, as quite odd because sort of state surveillance is something we tend to associate with either the the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. So your, mm-hmm. your, your mid-century Germany and uh, the Soviet Union, or or you tend to associate it more with with some of the modern conversations we're having around digital surveillance through yes. the tracking of emails and listening to phone calls. So to see this in the 18th century was was just bizarre. So, um, Sean, I noticed when within your three-minute thesis, of course, you focused on just, actually at that stage, just on the one person, but why have you chosen to focus on just a few people? And, and I guess, does this risk not telling an entire story when you're only looking at one or two people as opposed to what was happening generally in those times going with tourists coming in and out of Paris? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. And I think it, it gets to the heart of the, the sheer volume of, of stories that I'm dealing with and an effective way to tell the story. So I'm dealing with about 16,000 pages of surveillance reports. And most wow. often... I have, in, in, mo- in a lot of cases, I have one page for one person for one day, and that's all I will see of them. So right. to, tell, to, to tell this story, 
to tell 16,000 stories mm-hmm. in, in 300 pages is not possible. No. And so I wanted to capture a really interesting way of, of trying to capture this same story to tell, to tell the narrative of what's going on here without having to rely a lot on, on big statistical analysis and graphs and charts that can almost seem a bit dehumanizing. So what I decided to do is I decided to pick up the technique known as microhistory, okay. where is we focus on, focus in on a few individuals. In this case, I've ident- I've so far identified three individuals, and I'm working to find a few more of people who who sit in different categories of the story to to and tell tell the narrative of what's going on, share the history of what's going on through their perspective to, well, to really this, humanize it, the story. Because it's interesting, the people that you've, you've picked to, to focus on, like, um, you know, Madame Raybon, mm-hmm. who, as you said, is the German spy who lied about her identity, then the Viscount and Viscountess of Stormont, the English ambassador to France during the American Revolution. Correct. And then Inspector Buho, I think that's how they say it, the office, Buho, the officer who oversaw the whole network and um, Lieutenant General Lenoir, the head of the Paris police. So you've chosen two people, two or three people who were the visitors per se, but then you've also chosen to look at the police side of things, which is also fascinating. That's correct. So I I decided to... To, to, to pick people from, from sort of both sides of this story for a particular mm. reason. And that's because I will, by focusing on, on sort of the two sides of the story, I'm able to see both the motivations that are going on. So God. I'm able to see by looking at the story of Inspector Buho and Lieutenant General Lenoir, I'm able to see, well, what, what were their motivations here? What did they mm-hmm. want out of this surveillance? And mm-hmm. why were they doing it? And how were they doing it? By focusing then on some of the targets of the surveillance, uh, Madame de Raybon, as you've mentioned, the German spy, and then the English ambassador and his wife, I'm able to see the so sort of the in, the inside what the, what being a target was like, what right. the focus of this surveillance was like, and how they interacted with it, or how they were directly observed in some cases. So following these these storylines, though, I mean, how much are you picking up? Because I would imagine, say, on the police side of things, what kind of things are they writing in their one pages for the day about these particular people? So in the case of the English ambassador, uh, they, the police have actually placed a spy in his household. Oh, wow. So they, it's, it's the... I don't exactly know who it is, whether it's somebody who works in the dining room or the kitchen or in the laundry, but it's it's a member of his household staff. And that that household staff member is watching what this ambassador and his wife are doing almost every hour of the day. So they know if he sits down to write a letter at 9 a.m., they write that down. And they might even try to see what the letter is about or who it's going to. When he goes to dinner with so-and-so, they know who he's going to dinner with and they know when and they know where. So I'm getting some really detailed information here 
that the household spy is then able to send a small little letter to the police and give that to them. But what tipped them off in the first place to even think about putting a spy in that household? That's actually a really good question, and that kind of brings brings back to, to brings me back to the to the wider context of this story, right? Because they're not they're not picking these people at random. They're not mm-hmm. just deciding, hey, let's let's go watch that person over there. They're suspicious. No, right. they're they're picking people very deliberately. In the case of the English ambassador and his wife. This is a time, this is the 1776-1777, where the American Revolution is in full swing, and the French are quite involved. So at this this early stage, they're still, they're funding the Americans, they're they're sending a few officers over, they're maybe sending boats full of gold and guns, and the French are interested in declaring war on Britain. So to know what the English ambassador is up to, right. to see who he's talking to, what notes he's sending, and what particularly what information he is getting on the status of the British military is very important for the French. Makes total sense. Okay, so let, let's, because um, we kind of alluded to there's a bit of a comparison to what's going on with surveillance today. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um so, you know, what is that connection, really? I mean, because I remember in the, at the end of your three-minute thesis, you talked about, um, you know, Big Brother still watching you. It has been for a long time. <laughs> I think it really stems it stems into the fact that we, we think of surveillance as, as a very modern phenomenon. We, we, we tend to think of the government reading our emails or the, the constant corporate surveillance we get from Facebook or some of these other networks that exist. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what, what my project is, is really identifying, is identifying where some of this state surveillance actually originated, that it's not a product of modern totalitarian systems or even our modern sort of 1984 style state here. So it's, it's, it's not a product of the 20th or the 21st century that it's actually, it's something that existed much, much earlier than that, two centuries earlier than that in the 18th right. century as something fundamental to, to state control that they, they wanted to know. They wanted to know as much about as many people as they could. And I think that's, um, that's really good. All, all we've done now is change the technology of how to collect that information. Yeah, we've just made it easier. So instead mm-hmm. of the, the person in the big dark cloak sitting in the corner of the cafe listening to it, <laughs> it's somebody in a server room on a laptop. I, can I just make a, a quick comment? Um, yes. About as, as I mean, I know I've known what Sean's uh, research has been about, and I'm just kind of seeing some some kind of funny overlaps that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, I, I too was doing surveillance as part of my research. <laughs> I, was, I felt very much like a spy um, trying to, when I was at, you know, particularly Fort Henry, um, but some of the other locations, I was pretending to be a tourist, just like everybody else, yeah, uh, right. while I was secretly taking notes and taking photographs and observing what people were doing. So it's, kind of, it's just kind of, it's just yeah. an ongoing thing. 
um, where I, I mean, I just kind of, I, I well, it's, always, ob- it's observation, isn't it? Exactly. Well, it Sue, is observation. Sue, you had to fill out uh, you had to fill out ethics paperwork, though. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did indeed. Um, but it just—I mean—it's just always interesting to see overlaps in a sense, and and as, as well when Sean's talking about the American Revolution. That Mm -hmm. is the whole reason uh, people came and settled here on the North shore of Lake Ontario and obviously other places in upper, upper Canada. Um, And that's really the beginning of starting to plan for uh, an inland uh, waterway because of the great understanding of the threat of the American, um, the, the Americans basically trying to get more land and when when you look historically at what was going on throughout that period uh the war of 1812 the you know oregon border crisis and on and on and on um and other things that we tend not to think about such as the louisiana purchase um you know acquiring all the lands uh from that the french had had um controlled and that the Spanish had controlled. And you see this massive expansionism of, of the U.S. And it, it's, you know, we don't think about, we kind of joke about, you know, the longest undefended border and all that stuff. But really, when you're looking at the context of this historically, um, it, it was a real threat and it was an ongoing right. threat for a very long time. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to comment on that. Not that you no, but want to put this in but, your show, but it's just, it's fascinating to me how, um, so many of us can have these overlapping areas and yes we never really get an opportunity to to talk about those those sorts of things so i think mm-hmm. this is this is kind of cool no but this is the thing I, this is why i like these sort of conversations because we can go off on all sorts of tangents and it's fab, it's fascinating yeah yeah so, and and i just and i'm just going to add and carrie is is she's co-supervised by someone in the geography department so oh, okay. again, another overlap. Yes. So she's in the physical, she's in the physical side. Um, but again, mm-hmm. you know, it just, I, I mean, it's apart from the doors open thing and the lower burial ground, I'm just hadn't really thought about all these other overlapping connections, connections. between the three of us. So um, anyway, and not, and the other, the other thing, which I don't know that I mentioned is she's my niece. So. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So that that's where you said about the family resemblance. Right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've just checked the time and I've clearly got carried away with the, these conversations. And this is what happens because I love history and things. If I haven't told you that before on the radio, I love history and I can get a, a, a bit carried away. So I think what I'm going to have to do, because I want everyone to hear everything that you guys are doing, both in your research and in your um, volunteer community work, would you mind coming back next week so we can finish off this conversation? Uh, because I think everyone would be fascinated and would love to hear the rest of your stories. So if that's okay with you, I think let's finish it now, wrap it up quickly, and then let's have you back next week. Is that okay? Absolutely. I'd love to come back next week and chat some more. Yes, absolutely, Colette. This is a great opportunity to have wonderful discussions. And uh, thank you very much for doing this. You're very welcome. 
So that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. But don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.